Can you imagine as a young child being sent away from the country of your birth, thousands of miles away from everyone and everything you know, and to be forced to go by your own country's government, its churches and local authorities, in fact the very institutions that you would expect to protect you? I'm a Tony Costa, former child migrant, 1953. I would have been about 10 years of age. I was deported to Australia. Britain's unique in having such a long history of migrating very young children and started in 1618. And this practice, surprisingly to many people, only ended in 1970, when the last children, the post-war children, arrived in Australia. We had no say. It wasn't uh, Anthony. Would you like to go to A, B and or C, Mars, the Moon or Australia? We didn't know much about it other, oh yeah, you'll be able to ride on a horseback and pick fruit from the trees. In impressionable age, did we really know what we were going into? And the answer is no, we didn't. So who were these children and why were they made to emigrate? I'm Mukti Jain Campion and in this episode I'll be hearing about the official British child migrant schemes that drastically changed the course of so many young lives. And a warning, the personal accounts of former child migrants are distressing. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 8, Deported Children. Southampton Docks, summer 1954. A group of young children are gathered, ready to board a liner, headed for Western Australia. They carry no passports, no personal possessions, not even a teddy bear or a family photograph. For the duration of their long sea journey, the children will be supervised by a couple of strangers, adults who are themselves emigrating as so-called ten-pound poms. Among the boys in the group is nine-year-old Cliff Walsh. There were ten of us, and we left from Southampton. There were mixed emotions. There was me, who was as cold as a bloody fish, and there were others that were looking forward to an adventure. And there were others that must have known they had a mother or something because they were crying their eyes out. And it was the fact that they were crying made me apprehensive to even want to leave England. My name is Cliff Walsh. I was at an orphanage in England at nine years of age. A nun came up to us one day, myself and a few others were told, you're going to Australia. There was no, do you want to go or anything like that. It was just, you're going. Basically, we were deported out of England. Why did Britain migrate its children? And you can answer that in a sense that if you want to migrate your most vulnerable of your citizens and send them away, where are you going to send them to? Britain had somewhere to send them to. It had the empire. Margaret Humphreys is the founder and international director of the Child Migrants Trust, which she established in 1987 to support former child migrants. Children were sent to Australia and New Zealand and Canada and uh, former Rhodesia. Nearly 100,000 children were sent to Canada from 1875 
1925. We've never had a precise figure, but we're looking at, uh, you know, three, four thousand children in the post-war years to Australia alone. That, that impacts on a lot of families. And who was responsible for organising the migration? Well, various organisations, the church, all denominations, voluntary organisations, for example, Bernardo's, were involved in the migration of very young children to the other side of the world. The practice of sending British children to settle abroad was often spoken of as a way to give them a better life. But that was not the only reason, as a newspaper report from 1923 highlights. Child migration in the empire. The Prince of Wales, at a luncheon given by the Child Emigration Society yesterday, said that if there were one lesson more than another which had been brought home to our generation, it was that modern civilization could not tolerate waste. The Child Emigration Society set out to remedy, in the most sensible way possible, the saddest of all forms of waste, that of child life. Besides giving opportunities of health and happiness and usefulness to many children, it made a very helpful contribution towards solving the important imperial problem of migration within the empire. Westminster Gazette, Friday the 9th of November, 1923. The children themselves had little idea of why they were being sent away. Tony Costa had been at a children's home in London until he was dispatched to Australia in 1953. We sailed from uh, Tilbury Docks. The ship, the SS Aronce, took the best part of six weeks to sail to Fremantle in Western Australia. There were lots of other children from other institutions, similar to mine, from other parts of uh, England, and we were all shoved on this ship together. I don't recall any girls with us at the time. We were dominantly a group of boys going to Australia for a new life, as we were told. Children were told that they would ride horses to school, that life would be lovely, that the sun would shine all the time. So there's this promise of an exciting future. Many child migrants have told me that they thought that going to Australia would just be a day's journey and that they'd be able to come back at weekends. The reality turned out to be very different. On arrival in Australia, the children were split up, including separating siblings. They were sent to different institutions according to age. Although arriving in Australia a year apart, both Tony Costa and Cliff Walsh were sent to the same institution, about 60 miles from Perth. We were put in a truck, five of us in the front of a truck. We drove through the night to go to a place called Boystown Bindoon. And when we woke up the next morning, we saw Bindoon. It was quite an imposing building. And it was out in the middle of nowhere. There were no houses or anything around us. It was the most desolate place I'd seen. In fact, I didn't even know... Places this desolate even existed. From that moment on, things got bad and they progressively got worse. Boys Town Bindoon was run by an Irish Catholic order called the Christian Brothers. A newspaper account from 1951 describes the then newly opened farm school and its ambitions. In Western Australia, there are several establishments under the supervision of the Christian Brothers. 
for the education of poor and parentless boys. Boys Town, Bindoon, aims to train 200 new farmers in 20 years. The school, not yet completed, is situated in the fertile hills north of Perth. In the words of the Irish principal, Brother Keeney, We'll teach any boy what he wants to learn, whether it be farming, a trade or office work. The Bindoon property comprises 17,000 acres and was once part of an estate which stretched for a distance of 600 miles. The supreme aim of the Bindoon scheme, which Brother Keeney largely planned and set in motion, is set to develop these boys into settlers. The Australian government contribute to the project, as do the British, under a migration agreement. Catholic Standard, Friday the 16th of March, 1951. The children range from 8 to about 16. Well, we were supposed to be there to be cared for, but we worked and we worked like Trojans. On arrival, the boys were immediately allocated jobs you'd expect to be done by adults, including the construction of school buildings. I was only there two days before I was beaten to a pulp for doing something that I really had no right to be beaten for because they were building a fence and myself and another boy had to carry a crowbar to where they were building this fence. We were asked to take this crowbar three mile through the bush and it took us a long time and because it took so long, we were beaten to a pulp and I mean beaten, beaten quite soundly. Then afterwards, the guy who was doing the beating, a brother Moore, sat us on his lap and said he doesn't like to hit children. And I learned later in life this would be a complete lie. As a matter of fact, at nine years of age, if we were to push a barrel load of cement and we spilt a little bit, we got a, a belting for that. We were made to carry bricks to all parts of the establishment and carry tiles up ladders with no thought of safety. Even then, I did not know just how bad this place was. I don't believe we were adequately fed. It was a substandard of food, if any, and we were shabbily dressed into ex-military khaki uniforms that were cut up and uh, put upon us. We were lacking dignity based on the fact that we didn't have underwear garments to wear and it was very primitive, very primitive upbringing. We were referred to as sons of whores, that our mothers and our fathers didn't want us. This appalling uh, attitude yelled out to us in mass at that time, I knew nothing about my origins. I was unaware about who my mother or my father were, was never conveyed to me in any humane way. And when I did find it out many, many years later, I was subjected to ridicule being an orphan kid, or as it were, when it was revealed that both my mother and father went their separate ways after I was born in England, of Irish parents because my mother was chased out of Ireland because her father didn't want any daughter of his having a little tummy swollen with the likes of me in it. Illegitimacy was deplored 
they were vulnerable children and their families in particular found themselves in some very difficult circumstances, particularly after the Second World War. Um, they were often uh, children of single mothers in particular, children who found themselves in care, probably for very short periods of time. I didn't think my mother existed. I was later to find out that my mother placed me in St Vincent's Convent on December the 6th, 1946. And the story I got was after the war, they lost contact with her. And the thing that amazed me, the war had been over a year by then. So how they could say they lost contact with my mother seems to a lie. While you were in Australia, in Bindoon, you had no contact with your mother or any other relative? None, none at all, because uh, we didn't even know they existed. We, were, we all thought we were orphans. That's, that's the story they gave us. And when their mothers, or fathers or family members went to find their children, collect them, take them back home, only to be told their children had died... Others were told their children had been placed for adoption with loving families in the UK, when the reality was that many, many had been sent without parental consent to the other side of the world. We have to remember some of the children were as young as four years of age. And was this government sanctioned? Did the state authorities know this was going on? Oh, absolutely. These were... British government schemes, most certainly you you can't move hundreds of children from one side of the world to the other without government approval and sanction. So absolutely, they were approved government schemes. And why were the children being sent? I mean, what was the expectation of what would happen to them? Well, I I think uh, around that time, there was a view that there was such a thing as a new, fresh start and that you could move children from one side of the world, in this case, to the other, and give them this magnificent new start. Um, So people generally, particularly in Australia, accepted the propaganda that these were British kids who were orphaned because of the war, um, that they had no family, they certainly had no parents, and that they were being welcomed to Australia as part of their all-white policy. It was just white British children that were part of the child migration schemes. It was all part of populating Australia after the war. So were they seen as a resource? Yes, absolutely, that they would uh, work on farms. Girls would farm as wives. In the 1950s, there was a big drive to settle the vast expanses of Australia. The slogan of the time was populate or perish. The Australian government had announced a target to attract 100,000 British settlers over the decade. A target supported by the British government, which was keen to preserve the British character of colonial Australia. Child migrants to Australia. A call for increased numbers. Many children who are in children's homes in the United Kingdom would have much better prospects in Australia. This is one of the conclusions reached by Mr John Moss in a report published today by the Stationery Office. Mr Moss, a member of the Curtis Committee on the Care of Children, 
went to Australia on a private visit in 1952, there seems to be a feeling in some quarters that it is wrong to send a child for whom a local authority is responsible some 10,000 or 12,000 miles away, he says. If, however, members and officers of children's committees had had the same opportunities as my wife and I had of seeing the conditions under which the children are being cared for, I am sure they would have no hesitation in helping to fill the vacancies which now exist in approved establishments. The Liverpool Echo, 5th of March, 1953. I can understand their thinking. There was this big expense of all these orphanages throughout England after the war and Australia needed migrants, so they said, let's take the easy way out. For Britain, they subsidised the children financially when they arrived in Australia or Canada or New Zealand. There were subsidies. There was a contribution to their education and care. And of course, over these latter years, what has been learned by the child migrants themselves, that that funding towards their education need was never passed on to them at all. No one should treat any child the way we were treated, because we were just there to build their edifice. We worked day and night, and how we passed any school exams, I I think a bit the fiddling went on. If we had classes, it was at the end of the term for about two weeks, and the teacher who came to be known as Killer Moore, he's the guy that beat me up in the first place, would write a sum on the board, and anybody that got the answer wrong got the strap. And even though I very rarely make a mistake in maths, but even so I was still very frightened, and that's the sum of our schooling. Not only were we made to work like Trojans, they also sexually abused us, A brother Angus abused me on at least seven occasions. I felt vulnerable, frightened, afraid, terrified, you you name it. I, I lived through all these things every day. And there was nobody outside that you had contact with that you could find any support from at that time? Oh, no, none at all, because sometimes... Visitors would come from outside. There was always a brother present, and they say, do you like it here? And I say, oh, of course I do. Of course I did not say anything else. Because no matter what we said about the Christian brothers, we got beaten for it. It took us many years, at least a few, to find our voice. If you told a tale about some brutality or some perversion, you'd have to think twice about repeating it because you would be flogged physically if you were caught, as they would call it, telling tales. Oh, my word, we lived in fear. We were only humble kids from humble origins and apparently because we were born out of wedlock, we seemed to pay this terrible price. How typical are Tony and Cliff's experiences? What's been doing Boys Town, for example, 
an exception in terms of the brutal way it treated the children in its care. Well, of course, the brutality uh, of Bindoon has been investigated and uh, very well reported upon, particularly in the Royal Commission in Australia and various inquiries in the United Kingdom. It was indeed brutal. But sadly and regrettably, the abuse of British children in many of these institutions was absolutely systemic. Slave labour, sexual abuse on a scale that I don't think we've yet even comprehended. I think what I found difficult to understand speaking to both Tony and Cliff is why there was not better supervision of these institutions at the time. Why was there no nobody going in and investigating the standard of care at these institutions? Well, these children became invisible, particularly, of course, in the United Kingdom. And then when they arrived um, in their countries of destination, they became invisible children. They came lost to all the authorities. In fact, there were concerns and misgivings about British child migrant schemes almost from the beginning. And in 1956, three British officials went to Australia to examine 26 of the institutions where child migrants had been placed. They found widespread evidence of neglect and poor quality care in many, including Boys Town Bindoon. They recommended that children no longer be sent there. But records in the National Archives show that the British government and sending organisations conspired to cover up those findings. Uh, The British government allowed this barbaric treatment to continue. History shows that they were in denial for many years. Now that's A, the British government, and B, the churches as well. Boys could leave Bindoon at the age of 16 to become farm labourers or seek other jobs, but they didn't have access to their family records until they turned 21. I left Bindoon at the young age of 16. I still didn't know about my origins. We remained wards of the state under the government of the day, and so it wasn't till I turned 21 that I was told I was to report to the child welfare and they presented me with a certificate known as a birth certificate that gave the details of my late mother and my late father. And, uh, well, what did it mean to me at that age? Honestly, because of the, the disgusting references made that we were sons of whores and uh, that our mums and fathers didn't want us. And then to receive a birth certificate, it meant nothing to me. It wasn't till several years later that a television documentary alerted Tony Costa to the existence of the Child Migrants Trust. He contacted them for help in piecing together the jigsaw of his past. To their everlasting credit, they helped me find my family origins. They were able to locate my father's sister's family in Belfast. What child migrants said and say now is the painful issues of the loss of identity, the loss of belonging, who do I belong to? How could this have happened to me? All of those strands that are so important to our well-being of who we are and who we belong to, they and we saw that as the urgent focus. So primarily our work has been about reuniting families. Mother was born in Donegal and I didn't find out 
about them for many, many years later again. The nuns are supposed to have told, oh, yes, you come back when you get on your feet. And when she did go back to the orphanage that she did put me in, to be callously told, oh, he's gone to Australia. She had no say in that. Nobody asked her permission. Obviously not. There was no authorisation of consent to that to have ever happened. Um, I was none the wiser for it either. Had I had my rights or know what rights I had, we perhaps could have done something, I don't know. It was only much later again that Tony Costa discovered his mother had remarried and moved to America. But by the time he found out about her, she was already dead, having died relatively young. But in her favour, she did find a new life after uh, leaving me in the orphanage. She met up with an American airman, Air Force sergeant, and she had another family in the United States. He was a gracious man to my mother, and it was through his invitation that I was able to visit. I was able to find my mother's grave and meet up some of uh, the other members of the family whom I didn't know. Learning about his origins and being able to visit his mother's grave has been an important and positive step for Tony Costa. But for Cliff Walsh, reuniting with his long-lost mother when he was 50 didn't provide the solace and belonging he so desperately sought. It was only through the Child Migrant Trust that I found out she was living in Birmingham. So I went to Birmingham to see her. And this is the sad part. You expect a mother to love you, but my mother didn't. Now, I I appreciate the fact that in 1944, when I was born, a single mother was looked on as dirt. Do you know anything about your father? To be quite honest, I think my dad just had a cookie before he went to war. So I don't know his name, didn't know anything about him. And, of course, that left my mother an unmarried mother. She was a private nurse and too many places thought because she had a child and no father that she was an easy mark. It got too much for her. That's when she chucked me in the orphanage. Now, when I went to Birmingham to see her, she was still ashamed she had never told any member of her family about me. So much so that I was not allowed to go and visit her before three o'clock in the afternoon when there would be no chance of a visitor showing up unexpectedly. And I have to be honest, that hurt me quite deeply that, that my own mother would treat me like scum. Did you tell her about your experiences at the orphanage in Australia? No. She didn't express any interest in what had happened to you? Not at all. It only cemented my mistrust in people because I, I had very little trust in anybody. Do you feel any connection to England now? No, no. Certainly not after the way my mother treated me. Had I stayed in England and my mother treated me like a proper mother, 
Yeah, of course I'd have an affiliation with England. None whatsoever now. As a matter of fact, I, I like it when they get done in the cricket. The combined impact of family separation, forced migration and sustained childhood abuse has been profound for former child migrants and their families. Despite the disclosure of abuse by a growing number of former child migrants and determined campaigning by the Child Migrants Trust, it took a long time for their voices to be heard. The breakthrough came in 2009. We come together today to deal with an ugly chapter in our nation's history. Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. To say to you, the forgotten Australians, and those who were sent to our shores as children without their consent, that we are sorry. Kevin Rudd's apology was soon followed by that of Gordon Brown, who was then Prime Minister of Britain. To all those former child migrants and their families, to each and every one, I say today, we are truly sorry. They were let down. We are sorry they were allowed to be sent away at the time they were most vulnerable. We are sorry that instead of caring for them, this country turned its back. Well, justice, of course, is an important strand of recovery. And that has been a long time coming, a very long time. But it has led to a national apology in the United Kingdom and, of course, in Australia, which has had huge significance and meaning for child migrants and for their families. But I would say we're much too slow in investigating historic abuse. We're much too slow in delivering justice. We allow injustice to go on for too long, and particularly for the child migrants, the acknowledgement that this happened, why it happened, and who did it to you. A number of inquiries in Britain and Australia have now investigated in detail the experiences of former child migrants. Tony Costa and Cliff Walsh were amongst those who gave evidence to the Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which reported in 2017. I had been talking about the violent treatment and the abuse that we received at Bindoon, I had been speaking for many years and I think I was even considered a chronic liar because of some of the stories I used to tell. In fact, I I met with an old Navy friend of mine and he said Cliff would tell stories about what happened to him as a child and no one in the mess that believed him. It's, uh, it's so sad because... When I finally got up to speak at the Royal Commission into child sex abuse in institutions, I'd finished telling my story and there was applause afterwards. And of all my life, that was the most gratifying of all because I knew that I was finally believed. If we children have had a a voice early, we could have put a stop to this and probably saved hundreds if not thousands of boys being humiliated by these sexual abuses. Many lessons to be learnt from child migration, but one of the most important strands is, is how important our identity is to us, our country, our citizenship, and our families. The consequences of child migration will be within these families for generations. 
I'm of the view to this day that many of these people running these institutions should never have been near children. If we're going to reform the barbaric treatment of child migrants, these appalling behaviours that were tolerated under the auspices of the government of the day and the churches of the day, they must learn from this. I don't want any child to be deprived of their parents to go through what we went through. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jain Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani. Historic readings were by Adrian Prater. The podcast series is a CultureWise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council, England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.